Good afternoon, everybody. I'm Father Charlie Gordon, and this is my colleague Karen Eifler. And she and I uh, direct the Garaventa Center for Catholic Intellectual Life and American Culture here at the University of Portland. And we're your hosts uh, this afternoon and are delighted that you are able to join us. Academics uh, often complain that um, their lives as professors aren't quite what they imagined they were going to be. Um, that more time than they anticipated is spent in things like, like going to meetings and, and subcommittee meetings and, and ad hoc meetings and, uh, and, and writing reports and so on. Uh, but today, today is the kind of thing uh, that we imagined we would be doing uh, as, as academics. Uh, because uh, today uh, we celebrate an important uh, new book uh, by, by one of our colleagues, by uh, a member of our university. And it's not, it, it is an important book. It's, it's a book that, uh, to borrow Nietzsche's phrase, is the result of uh, a long discipline in a single direction. And an academic uh, career that has been, on the writing side, uh, given over to the service of an area of systematic theology that for years was unjustly neglected and that, that Tom uh, faithfully helped to keep vibrant and alive over, over a number of decades and which today, gratefully, is, is undergoing a, a real renaissance in recent years and is, uh, is really showing tremendous possibilities uh, for the future. So today, for those reasons, is uh, an occasion to celebrate. It's also an occasion to celebrate because uh, this kind of scholarship is not something that... Uh, that happens in an ivory tower or that, that happens in a monastic cell. This is a work of scholarship that has had contributions over many years from colleagues and from students who've made their contribution uh, to making today happen. And, uh, and so for, for all of those reasons, uh, we celebrate this, this new work from Father Tom Hosinski and, uh, and ask you to join me in, in welcoming him to tell us a bit more about the book that we're launching today. Thank you very much, Charlie. I hope I can even halfway live up to that introduction. I would like to begin by thanking, first of all, Dr. Karen Eifler and Charlie um, for uh, sponsoring this event. They're co-directors of the Garavena Center, and I'm deeply honored that uh, this is being done. And thank you to all of you for coming. Um, I'm not going to speak very long. I'm just going to try to tell you what I was trying to do in the book, and um, then I can open it up to questions if anyone has any. Basically, I wanted to do four things in this book. Um, first of all, I wanted to try to show that process philosophy could be employed by a Catholic theologian and still be orthodox. Um, I think process philosophy and theology have had such a rough time getting a hearing, especially in the Catholic community, 
because most of its most famous adherents uh, and uh, people talking about it, um, writing prolifically about it, like John Cobb down at Claremont University, have been very radical and quite willing to um, depart from traditional Christian doctrines, such as the doctrine of the Trinity. John Cobb has actually proposed that we think of a binity, not a trinity, two instead of three. And um, virtually every process theologian um, that's been published widely has uh, attacked the doctrine of creation out of nothing. And because of that, the Catholic tradition has been deeply um, skeptical about whether you can use process thought and remain orthodox. So one of the things I tried to do in this book is show that you can. Now, it does require um, a revision of Whitehead's philosophy in certain key ways, which I tried to do in the book, but um, I really did try to show that you can adhere to all Orthodox Catholic Christian doctrines and um, still employ process thought. I also tried to be respectful of the tradition. Um, instead of trying to find fault with it, uh, although I do point out some of its difficulties in employing classical Greek metaphysics to think about God, uh, I tried to build on what I saw as very positive aspects of the tradition. In particular, the idea of existence as participation in the very life of God as one, and then secondly, the hiddenness of God's action, which I believe we can trace all the way back to the teachings of Jesus, frankly. Um, I could have been pretty critical of some of the aspects of the tradition, but I thought that would kind of go against what I was trying to do. So I chose simply to pick the parts of the classical Christian theologians through the ages that I could build on instead of finding fault with other aspects of their thought. Uh, thirdly, and again, one of the reasons why I wanted to employ process philosophy in doing this book on God is my conviction that today uh, to talk about God really absolutely requires that we take into account what contemporary science tells us about the nature of reality. Sometimes people talk about God and God's actions in ways that that are, frankly, rather naive with regard to how we understand reality through the sciences. So I wanted to um, devote part of the book to an interaction between religion and science. There are a couple of chapters in there summarizing contemporary physics and cosmology and also contemporary evolutionary theory. Um, <clears throat> and I, I want to take that seriously in, in working out the understanding of God in the second half of the book. And lastly, um, I've been convinced for many years that the Christian tradition has virtually ignored the implications of Jesus' teachings for the understanding of God. Um, because of the adherence to classical Greek metaphysics and working out the understanding of God, uh, the implications of many of Jesus' parables and even of his actions, I think, have been overlooked for an understanding of God. And so um, I begin the book with a whole chapter trying to summarize uh, the implications of some of Jesus' parables, uh, his other teachings, and his actions for how we go about understanding God. The reason I do that is because if we're really serious about what we believe, namely that Jesus Christ was the incarnation of God, then the way he acted 
the way he taught, what he said about God, ought to be very, very important in working out a Christian understanding of God. And yet, if you actually study the tradition, I would argue that Greek metaphysics has been more influential in what the tradition said about God than the teachings of Jesus ever have been. So I wanted to start the book with a kind of analysis of what I see as the implications of Jesus' teachings and actions for understanding God, because I believe that embedded in there are very unusual understandings of divine power and how God acts. And that runs through the whole book then. The, the first chapter, as I say in the preface, is like a touchstone that I return to several times uh, to try to articulate a doctrine of God in faithfulness to the tradition, and yet one that's quite different from what traditionally has been said about God. So with that, if anyone has any questions, I'd be happy to try to answer them. Yeah, Karen. Okay. I promise I'm going to read the whole book. <laughs> <laughs> I really do. But, um, but I, I am interested if you could give us kind of a taste of, of that big last point that you were talking about, that understanding Jesus helps us to understand something more about God the Creator. Or, it's sort of like you said, look for that, and I will, but I wonder if you could just give us a little commercial for, for something that we'll find there. Sure. Uh, I, I think one of the most powerful claims of the Christian faith is that in the suffering and death of Jesus, we encounter a God who loves us so deeply that this God is willing to undergo suffering and death to save us. Yet if you actually study the technical doctrine of God in Christian theology, it says God cannot suffer. Okay? And to me, I've always not been able to grasp that, to, to, to accept it. And so I'm trying to work out an understanding of God that would enable God to be said to suffer without compromising God's perfection, which was the criticism from classical Greek metaphysics. A perfect being can't suffer. It's the classical attribute of immutability. Because to say that you can suffer means you're affected by something outside of yourself. And the tradition wanted to say God cannot be affected by anything outside of God's self, so therefore God cannot suffer. Otherwise, this would compromise God's perfection. The beauty of process thought is that it recognizes that God has opposite attributes, both true. God is absolute as the creator, ground of existence and everything, but God's also relative in experiencing what happens in the world. And if God being relative means that God is going to suffer for two reasons, really. Not only does God... Um, take into God's own experience the sufferings of all creatures, not just humans. But God also suffers because of the difference between the vision of beauty that God has, of what could be, and what we actually do. Um, there's there's a, a difference there between what could be and what is. And God suffers because God, just to give a quick example, I might run into a homeless person downtown, and I could look at them in the eyes, and I could ask them what they need. I could try to help them. But my normal inclination is to walk by as if they don't exist. There's a difference between what could have been and what is. And God suffers because of that. Because the kingdom of God is the world that God wants us to help God to build. And we don't do that all the time. So that's what I'm trying to get at. That The, the process thought picks up aspects of what we have in our tradition. Because I believe in piety 
and in liturgy. Uh, the notion of a suffering God is absolutely crucial to the Christian faith, and yet the technical theology denies it. It tries to say only the human part of Jesus suffered, the divine part didn't. So <clears throat> I'm trying to you know, call that into the equation. But I, also some of his parables are remarkable in the sense of how does God act. If you take the parable of the prodigal son, uh, the father in that parable doesn't punish his son for having said the most awful thing that you could say to a father, I wish you were dead, which is in effect what he's saying by asking for his inheritance. Uh, the father doesn't punish the son. The, 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 the problem that the son falls into are the results of his own free choices. And when he comes back home, his father doesn't say, well, you made your bed, now lie in it. He receives him back and heals him. Okay, So God is not presented in Jesus' parables as a punisher. Uh, God is presented as someone who heals and saves. And the tradition doesn't pick that up in the sense of, of realizing that God is affected by what happens. Because in that parable, the father's overjoyed that his son has come home. He's very full of emotion, and he's not even listening to his son's confession of sin. Uh, and that's an image of God that Jesus presents. The tradition just kind of doesn't do much with it because it says God can't be affected by emotion. So I'm trying to show that process thought can assist Christian theology by picking up these elements in Jesus' own teaching and in his actions that the tradition really didn't develop. Because it's not that they had a whole lot of choice. The only philosophies that were available in the early centuries of Christianity were Greek philosophies. And the Greek philosophies have certain assumptions about divinity that just don't help us too, too much. So anyway. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yes, Tina. By, create, by creating free human beings, has God limited God's self? Yes. And the church has always taught that. <clears throat> the church, on the one hand, wanted to say God has all power, but it also said human beings have free will. It wants to say that because without that, there's no doctrine of sin, no need for salvation, and so forth. So the church always said, yes, God is all-powerful, but God chooses to give us freedom, and that means that God does not control what we do. Now, somebody like Whitehead, and there are other theologians, who, who, or theologians rather, who do this, like John Polkinghorne in England, argue that we should extend that to the whole of creation, not restrict it to human beings. So in Whitehead's philosophy and in Polkinghorne's theology, God creates all creatures with freedom. Not free will, because free will implies consciousness, but freedom. And if the world, the universe is going to be free, then God must limit God's omnipotence. So God might be theoretically omnipotent, but in actuality, God self-limits that power. Just as parents have to limit their power when they're raising children. I mean, if a parent tries to control absolutely everything that a person, a child does through their entire childhood and adolescence, you destroy the person. You have to allow them freedom to be able to make mistakes. And if you don't do that, the child is, is harmed. So if God wants a free universe that responds to God's initiatives freely, God can't control what happens. So that's the same thing also. So freedom has a relative autonomy in relation to God. Also creation has a relative autonomy in, in relation to creator. 
Yes, the whole, the whole universe. It's the powers of nature. And the sun will rise and the sun will set according to its laws. God will not say, you know, today I will not let the sun rise, you know, or the, today I will not let the sun set. Right. Nature has its already its intrinsic laws that will have to, you know, operate. Yes. Uh, in relative autonomy to God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's... the earthquakes and all this, you cannot completely say that's God's fault. Can't say it's God's fault at all. It's the nature <laughs> of the thing. It's the way th- the way things have worked out in in the history of this particular planet. But <clears throat> you know, it's. I used to study geology when I was in college, and I've always thought that people don't pay any attention to the common sense when they build their homes. You know, I mean, there are homes built right on the San Andreas Fault in in California and on the Hayward Fault. And if you know that's there, why on earth would you put your home there? You know? Um, So, yeah, when the home's destroyed by an earthquake, it's a tragedy for those people. But in a sense, they should have used better common sense. You know? It's just the living planet. The planet's alive, and it's this is what happens. It moves. Pat? Ancillary question. I'm not sure if you address it in the book, but um, how do you, how do this process, philosophy, or theology account then for miracles? Is it? Yeah, I do have a little bit on that in the book. Um, the the problem of miracles is quite interesting because um, thanks. <laughs> Should I read from it? <laughs> um, <clears throat> everything depends on how you define a miracle. And the reason people um, have trouble with miracles, it actually goes back to David Hume in the 18th century who defined a miracle as a violation of the laws of nature. And since he had said that nature's laws are based on the universal testimony of human experience, in essence, there can be no evidence to support the occurrence of a miracle because universal human experience is against it. And even if people don't know about Hume in that argument, it's, it's there in the back of everybody's heads. Miracles are violations of the laws of nature. Well, I have, there are two things I would point out that I discuss in the book on that one. Many laws of contemporary physics are not hard and fast absolute laws like the Newtonian laws at the time that Hume was writing. They're statistical in character, and this is true both in quantum uh, mechanics and also in um, the scientific study of animal and human behavior. You can't predict what an individual is going to do. Um, however, in large numbers, in groups, you can give statistical probabilities of the likelihood of this or that happening. When I was studying physics on my own, I, I was shocked to read in, in one book that for the Schrodinger wave function of the hydrogen atom, there's one possibility, uh, a very remote one, it occurs to, amounts to something like once every billion years or so, the uh, electron of the hydrogen atom can be found a mile away from the nucleus. Now, to me, that's a miracle, because if you think about how many atoms are between that electron and that nucleus, why isn't that electron captured by any of those other atoms? Um, So it's a highly improbable event, but it's not impossible, and that makes a huge difference. If events are just highly unlikely, you still can't read them out of the picture, they are possible. And so a miracle could be defined as a highly unlikely or improbable event that nevertheless is possible. It can occur. The second thing is, if if you want to stick with Whitehead as opposed to Charles Hartshorn, another philosopher who's 
often talked about in uh, process thought. Whitehead um, actually believed that the laws of nature were emergent from the universe itself, the results of social interactions within the universe, and that they could therefore um, not be obeyed on some occasions. There could be events that occur that don't obey the laws of nature. And if that's possible, and Whitehead thought it was, then there's an opening there for miraculous events to occur. The reason this is, uh, is so important is because Christianity, in a sense, is based on the claim for a miracle, that God raised Jesus from the dead. And a lot of people have um, privately solved the problem by saying, I don't believe it happened. And even sometimes theologians do that quite in public, that the resurrection was a spiritual event that happened in the hearts and minds of his followers, but not an objective historical event. And I don't think it's necessary to go there. If you can recognize that God brought life out of death once, namely the origin of life on earth, from a non-living planet you have living things emerging, why can't God elicit life out of death in the case of the death of Jesus? It's possible. I mean, I don't know how it happens. I can't suggest how it might happen, but it's possible. And therefore, I don't have any trouble with, you know, notions of miracles. We have perhaps time for one more question. Yes, Simon. Yeah. I have a, first of all, I think what you're saying shows how important we shouldn't generalize a, uh, a context. The Greek context has been generalized as we're mm. stuck with that. Now, I am particularly interested in uh, how much process theologians engage liberation theologians, especially in the context of the suffering of the other and the prophetic approach to engaging that suffering, especially when you talk about freedom. Yeah, that's a very good question. I, I don't think the process theologians per se have done a whole lot with that, but they're, they're, they certainly could. Um, there's no reason why there shouldn't be a conversation between liberation theologians and process thinkers. I know back, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, uh, there was a conversation going on between process and existentialism. But um, I have to say that most process theologians have not done very much with liberation theology, uh, but they could, I think. Yeah, I think there's a lot of open possibilities there for that kind of discussion. Thank you, Tom. Uh, the image of the unseen God uh, is, is on sale at that table over there, along with uh, another, of, uh, another of Tom's. Tom is struggling against allergies today, so this is actually, actually pretty heroic. Uh, and, if, and if you'd like, I, though he'd blush to do so, I think you could probably twist his arm and, and Tom would be happy to, uh, not wouldn't be happy, but he would be willing to, uh, to, to, sign, to sign a copy of your book. Uh, welcome to our president, Father Mark Poorman, who's just arrived with us, and our provost, Dr. Tom Green, uh, who is here as well. Uh, please uh, stay and talk to one another, and perhaps you'd like to have a word with, uh, with Tom individually. And we'd still have some lovely treats back there to uh, to add to the celebration. And uh, so, one one more time, let us let's let's thank Tom for this remarkable work.